0: Hey gang, welcome to the Your Basket is Empty pod, a space where I sit down with agencies, brands, and original ecom thinkers to discuss their journey, practical advice, and how they're navigating the current digital landscape. Your Basket is Empty is also a bi-monthly industry newsletter that covers the most interesting ecom and direct consumer news, interviews with original ecom thinkers, a jobs board, an event listing section, and a playlist. Go check that out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, I'm chatting with my mate, Joseph Fitzgibbon, the founder of Growth & Company. They are a part consultancy, part recruiter, and they partner with VCs and founders to define their marketing strategy, then hire and train the teams to deliver it. We're chatting about the new marketing paradigm. We discuss creating new channels like communities, avoiding product and marketing silos, whether brand trumps product, the rise of LinkedIn as a new medium for direct consumer brands, e.g. cereal, who's best adapting to this new paradigm, and Joe's take on whether to hire an agency or not before we get into it, this episode is brought to you by my good friends at OmniSend. You might have heard things like email marketing is expensive, has low ROI, or it's too complicated. Now, what if I told you these are all myths? In reality, email marketing can be affordable, bring in a great return on investment, and is incredibly straightforward. Or at least, that's all true if you used OmniSend, the email marketing and SMS platform used by more than 100,000 e-commerce brands to attract, convert, and keep new customers. OmniSend is intuitive, packed with pre-built templates and automation workflows. And guess what? It's 40% cheaper than the leading e-commerce marketing platforms. Worried about ROI? In 2022, OmniSend's merchants enjoyed a staggering average return on investment of $72 per every dollar spent, which is double the industry average of $36. And if you ever need help, get your questions answered in under three minutes by an award-winning support team that's available 24-7 even during busy days like Black Friday and Christmas. So don't let me hold you back. Experience email marketing that really sells with OmniSend. Find out more at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty and give your e-commerce brand the boost it deserves. Joe, welcome to the pod. How are you? And where are you?
1: I I am in my home. I'm in southwest London.
0: Nice. Uh is it raining there at the moment?
1: It is. It's been miserable. And I I spent a month in France as of a week ago. So the adjustment has been pretty tough. <laughs> like thirty degrees, like there was a vineyard opposite us to rainy, horrible southwest London. So yeah, I've having I mean, having proper kind of holiday um,
0: withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, 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 post-holiday blues. I mean, where did June go? June was so fucking lovely, like 30 degrees every day. Anyway, I think this week's going to be nice and we'll leave, we'll park the weather for the moment. We're going to talk about the new marketing paradigm, but before we get into that, I like to do a little bit of a rewind usually. So let's do that with you. Tell me a bit about your experience with Greys, Diageo, Pepsi, and how that led you to your current incarnation of recruitment.
1: Cool. Um, So yeah, I I suppose I had a bit of a varied career. I worked in strategy consulting early doors, did an MBA, and then basically sort of fell into the world of startups. So I joined Gray's. They were hiring a strategy role. The role got pulled before I went there. And they said, actually, you know what, we're hiring this marketing role. And yes, you have no technical marketing experience, but you've got a different perspective on sort of commercial thinking and you're interested. Mm -hmm. And then basically they took a punt and it worked really well. And you know, I sort of had a rapid education in, in marketing. I mean, when I worked in consulting, I worked in healthcare, the first day I was like, oncology, it's like, what's that? I was like, Googled it, I was like, oh, it's, can- it's cancer. I was like, okay, cool. And then like, you know, first day of grades was like, PPC, what's that? I was like, oh, it's Google, okay, cool. Um, so it sort of came in it from quite a different angle to other people. Um, I mean, I had an amazing experience at grades. I learned massive amounts. But i also, Gray's had six CMOs in the 18 months that I was there, which is pretty nuts. I mean, the the founders just weren't sure who to hire, the recruiters didn't have any marketing experience, and they just kept getting it wrong. They mm-hmm. hired some pretty amazing people, but they weren't necessarily the amazing people for where Grays was in its journey. And I sort of saw that and thought, this is pretty extreme, right? So Grays sold to Unilever, but it sold for a lot less than it should have sold for and I kind of looked at that and thought this model is wrong and then I you know fast forward a few years ultimately set up the business I have today which is part consultancy part recruiter so we advise investors and founders on growth and then we hire the people to deliver that growth so if you kind of walk in with a JD and say go and hire it we're just going to say no we have to see that the role is you know properly scoped and consistent with the wider strategy.
0: That's super interesting. And what sort of companies are you currently working with?
1: It's quite a mixture, really. So some sort of seed stage, so working with their first, hiring their first head of growth, head of marketing, mm-hmm. some kind of bigger stage businesses who have, you know, kind of changing out teams for various reasons. And then we also do quite a lot of corporate stuff as well. So we worked with, um, you know, Unilever, worked with Reckitt, worked with some big businesses who are kind of bringing that kind of entrepreneurial vibe into the business and are sort of, you know, they're buying startups or they're building themselves and they want that sort of, you know, growth marketing angle rather than a sort of more traditional view of marketing.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And is there any consistency amongst them? Are they all totally different? Like, do you have to wear many different hats when you're dealing with, you know, seed stage through to like a, you know, big conglomerate, like a Unilever?
1: Yeah, it's pretty different. Obviously, the kind of the budgets and and team and type is is quite different. I think that there's some sort of recurring themes in terms of like how marketing's evolving and having accountability and having sort of silos being removed, but it's pretty different. It's what makes the job cool, right? So you're dealing with very different businesses on a regular basis um, and companies need help, right? They just don't know. Like if you look at the number of, you know, four times out of five, the roles that we're asked to deal with are not the roles that we we recommend because, you know, people are sort of, they just don't know. And it is pretty radically different. So it's, it's interesting, a lot of variety.
0: That's super cool. Well, it's a good segue into at the top of that answer there about the changing face of marketing. So why do you think we've entered a new paradigm in marketing? What do you think has changed?
1: Uh, how long have we got on this pod, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: we currently have 25 minutes, 20, 24 minutes and 20 seconds.
1: I mean, I think, I think if you look back at sort of finance and tech and these sorts of things, you look back kind of five years ago, it's pretty much the same as what it was, right? And like these, these sectors haven't changed rapidly. Whereas you look at marketing, you know the marketing I did at Gray's five years ago versus what's going on today, is radically different. I think we're seeing um, you know a few kind of big things happening. So I think one is a lot of tech is becoming um, you know, commoditized. So you know if you look at the gray, Grays had you know, we had like ten engineers, we built everything bespoke. Now you can do that with Shopify in a weekend. Right? Yep. So these sort of tech businesses are not really tech businesses anymore. They're tech enabled, sure, but they're not tech businesses, which is a big difference. We're seeing like particularly performance marketing, it used to be pretty complex, right? You'd have to have the best agency. You'd have to have people who are very knowledgeable. The platforms are very complex. And now those platforms are much simpler. And the barriers to entry for those, for anyone doing performance marketing has changed radically. So you're facing a lot more competition. And obviously you've got the kind of VC credit crunch, where there's the sheer lack of sheer amount of money going around is, is less. So I think you, you're you having a rapid change. Now, some of this stuff has been going on for a long time. So, you know, marketing is being more accountable than it used to be. And the idea of running, you know, TV campaigns with a without the clear view from the board of like, you know, you put this money in, and you get this money out. Mm-hmm. You know, Facebook is automated over a long period of time. But I think you also have this immediate credit. You know, sort of lack of funding, which has mean that companies really have to focus more on it rather than just sort of gradually improve.
0: Yeah, that's interesting trifecta. So let's talk about the state specifically of growth marketing. Um, what's working at the moment? What's not working? Or what do you see?
1: I mean, I think growth marketing as a, a principle works. I think, you know, you've got kind of traditional brand marketing, which isn't dead, but it's it's still there. Uh, you have kind of acquisition marketing, which is, you know, basically performance marketing. So the product stays the same and you're finding new ways to sell it and that's still there, but it's becoming harder. And then, you know, what is changing is you're moving towards a growth model where you're combining product and marketing as one function. So the idea that you can just sell the same product and, you know, find a new channel and, you know, experiment on threads and TikTok and blah, 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 and suddenly get, you know, something do very well is very difficult. So I think what's working well is companies who have, A sort of more holistic approach to the funnel, and they're looking at ways of evolving their product to meet the market. Yep. And they are, you know, experimenting on different channels. They're doing lots of things, but ultimately they've got they've removed their internal silos. I think what's also worked well is is the idea of creating a channel rather than investing in someone else's channel. So, how do you create a way to drive to own your audience? So things like communities or. You know, Podcast or whatever it may be, where you're kind of creating a very different product than companies would have done five years ago. I think yeah. that's interesting. It's very labor intensive. It's very time consuming. It's risky, but if you get it to work well, you own the kind of customer journey. So I think kind of what's working well is the true principle of growth marketing. What isn't working well is companies who are sort of pushing harder on performance marketing and expecting a very different outcome.
0: Yeah. What one might suggest that that's the uh, definition of insanity in those instances. <laughs> Let's just come back to, you talked about it there briefly, but I saw you recently talked about the silos um, when it comes to market, marketing and product. Why do you think we need to be aware of those silos? Tell me more about that.
1: I think traditionally the platforms, so kind of meta, Google, etc., were very, very complex and therefore going from having a go to world-class best practice was very difficult. And now those platforms have become much simpler. There's a lot more people around who are knowledgeable. The average quality of the agency is, is improved and I'm sure you'll have some good, good thoughts about that, agencies. And you can you can sit in your bedroom and look at a YouTube video and compete with some pretty impressive businesses, which you couldn't mm-hmm. have done a while ago. So that, that has changed and therefore it's becoming much harder to compete on that view. Now the way you compete nowadays is, you know, it used to be about ad buying, about finding the right audience. And that's still true Mm -hmm. to some extent, but it's often automated. And now it's around, you know, do you make more money than your competitors? And therefore you can pay to have your ad at the top slot. And you do that by a bit of brand um, and basically a better product. So have you, you know, can you convert interest in your product into money in the bank better than other people? and therefore you can compete better. I think the businesses that, that are doing well are the ones who understand that and are looking full funnel and saying, you know, how do we create value through the funnel? Where you have kind of silo teams, where you have a brand team, you have a ports marketing team, you have a CRM team, you have a retention team, et You're You're not setting yourself up in a, in a way to succeed because all of them are sort of managing their own thiefdom but you don't have anyone who's looking holistically to say, you know what, the key opportunity is improving LTV and therefore we're going to focus all of our attention on retention rather than just having one person on it.
0: You touched on an interesting point there about like the idea of product and brand. Like how far does the brand get you if the product sucks? Like is the product <laughs> really the the end goal there? Like if the product is good, is that an easier solution? to then fix the brand versus the other way around?
1: It's interesting. I, I, was, I was thinking a while ago about, you know, could I name a, an amazing brand that had a terrible product and sustain that over a long period of time? And I really struggled. I think sometimes you can have an amazing brand and then use that to build a better product, right? So you mm. might be a celebrity and you've got some sort of product and you build massive awareness of it. And you get some money in the bank and then you improve your product over time. So it actually does genuinely become a pretty good product. I think it's difficult to sustain. Like product is the true growth. Like if you build a good product, that is true growth. Whereas some of these things, you know, if your brand stands for one thing and the reality is different, particularly with the world of reviews and the world of, you know, Mm. sort of fast media and these sorts of things, I'm not sure how long
0: that stands up for. I want to switch gears to people. Who do you think is doing a good job at adapting to this new marketing paradigm and who isn't adapting well? That could be companies, could be people, you know, what's your general take?
1: Interesting. I think generally corporates are doing badly. The the kind of big consumer businesses of the day are struggling to adapt to the reality. And they're still kind of very much what they were like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, where these sort of big marketing budgets, they're managed yearly, there's very little accountability. And I just don't think that works in a modern era. So I think those businesses are doing badly. I think the lack of available funds is making people more more innovative. And I think there's some really interesting businesses who are sort of particularly using channels which you wouldn't think would be successful. So if you look at like Surreal, like a DTC serial business in the UK, they are having a lot of success with LinkedIn. Now, you know, if you asked me a year ago, would a serial business use LinkedIn as an acquisition channel, I would have laughed. And now I do laugh because they've got some funny ads. <laughs> it's working pretty <laughs> well. Um, so I think kind of using a different playbook, I think learning the old playbooks, but then kind of using them differently. I think that's really interesting.
0: I suppose that segues nicely into, and maybe cereal are a good example of it, that do you think DTC brands have that advantage to shift quickly when market dynamics change? Like, are they more nimble or is that a bit of a fallacy?
1: I think they, they are more nimble, but they also have a lot of disadvantages versus the big corporate. So, interestingly, I mean, I worked at Gray's, obviously, um, and Gray's then became, well, got bought by a big corporate mm-hmm. and also advised lots of smaller businesses. I think, obviously, they do have the ability to be nimble, but I think D2C in isolation can be really challenging. I think the kind of power is where you have relationships with retailers or other channels, and it's much easier to get those when you're bigger and you're more credible. And you've got a more established product. So I think the sort of combination of all three of them is, is best. I think yes, they are they definitely are more na- nimble, um, but they also don't necessarily have the resources to exploit that nimbility. Not a word.
0: Nimblity. <laughs> Numberity is good. Yeah.
1: But I think there's some interesting stuff where sort of bigger corporates are you know basically accepting that they cannot move as quickly and they are building kind of standalone business units which are staffed by startup people with the benefits of the corporate and we've done a lot of work to advise these sorts of businesses and to help them hire and that's a really interesting combination because you've got a brand name of the main business you've got money you've got lawyers you've got connections but you also have a kind of culture that's startupy and that can be a really powerful combination i think some of those are doing very well at the moment
0: that's really interesting. And because I've seen a few of those. What was that we make? You know, we would kind of work. Some of the guys that you'd been talking about before, like Pepsi and Wreck we did some at least scoping. And I was always surprised by how small some of their budgets were. Like we would go in thinking, like, oh shit, you know, Unilevers uh, inquired and we assumed that it was going to be some sort of you know they weren't going to bring the entire unilever portfolio onto shopify right but it would have been some new brand or some discovery thing or whatever it is and then they'd have like 5k to spend on a, on a new website which was you know like a very small amount so what is it that you're seeing that you think these guys are doing well have they realized they need bigger budgets are they just taking it way more seriously do you think it's the type of people that they're hiring obviously the type of people they're hiring that you're hiring into them
1: yeah, it's, it's different, really. I mean, I think sometimes with those big businesses, they don't really know where to start. So it might just be in a sort of, you know, Friday afternoon brainstorm, and they love, like, Let's go and talk to these guys. We've got five grand. They're not seriously yeah, committing yeah, yeah. to it as a bigger as a bigger structure. I think it's difficult to know, you know, getting the right balance with these guys because they have an established business that's working well. I think the ones who are doing well are, you know, separating it out. And I think also culturally, this sort of traditional Unilever of like a yearly planning cycle and doing big deals with Tesco and Walmart is very different from building a Mm. Shopify. And it just doesn't work. So I think some of them have bought businesses that are underperforming. They've also had a bunch of ideas and they're keeping them slightly at arm's length. And I think having a situation where you've got a sort of one-way door into the normal Unilever is really powerful. So when the, the kind of innovation unit wants money or resources, then they can come for it. But Unilever can't go to the innovation unit and say, "You know, help me launch this, you know, whatever it is product on on DTC."
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. That works well. And this is a slight sidestep. What 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 are your general thoughts on DTC right now? Like, do you think it feels as though, and maybe it's always been this, like a channel for experimentation, go to market, etc. Maybe the pure play kind of stuff is not so much there anymore. If you want to get really big, it feels like you got to go retail. you got to go B2B. I
1: mean, a lot of the DTC businesses are doing pretty badly pre-pandemic. And they had a huge lifeline and they grew really well. And then they had a very sort of painful hangover where consumer attitudes and behaviors went not fully back to where it was, but not far off. Mm-hmm. And then you also had some headwinds of inflation and some other issues as well. So I think there's definitely, I think, you know, running a pure play DTC business is, is a challenge. I think people have to understand the advantages of DTC and I think a lot of businesses, you know, if you're selling razors or or you know, nuts or whatever it may be, it's pretty convenient to walk into your local store and buy it. And the idea of yeah. having DTC, we have to remember your passcode and get the right delivery schedule and that stuff sort of, is actually not convenient. I think you know where companies can combine services and products together and have a more holistic view, then the DTC element becomes really powerful because you get data, you get you know, customized, you know, you get lots of interesting stuff. So, you know, dog food works pretty well because it's customized to your dog and, you know, dog food combined with a vet, combined with insurance, it's a pretty interesting proposition.
0: That's a very interesting proposition, yeah. I don't
1: think anyone's quite nailed it, but, like, suddenly that's radically different from walking into your pets at home and buying dog food, right? And I think... You know, buying razors where, you know, your use of razors is variable and, you know, it's not a massive priority for you in the grand scheme of things. It's difficult to get that to work. But I think where you can combine services with sort of customization and things that are radically different from what Amazon or Tesco or the local independent can do, I think that's really powerful. So, DDC is not dead. Um, it's tougher, much tougher, don't get me wrong. Um but I think pure play DTC with selling products which are not a million miles different to what you could go on Amazon, that's pretty much dead. Yeah. Where you can build a unique product with services, st- still money to be made.
0: Yeah, I suppose maybe my definition there of direct consumer is slightly skewed. I'm thinking about DNVBs, if that's a term anymore, right? But like direct consumer services coupled with a product, that's a very interesting concept. And I always think about the subscription boxes like what I've got like ten different subscriptions going on at any one time. When, well, I don't because I go to like I get a lot of the stuff from my Waitrose order or whatever. Right, it's way more convenient for me to lump in and raises into that order, and I've got full control over that experience, and the experience is pretty good. As opposed to having, like you said, multiple different subscriptions going on. Also, I'm not sure what the environmental sort of impact of that is. Like a whole bunch of different boxes coming to my. Like house. yeah, the, the dog food one. I think it's interesting in wrapping in services. I suppose it's kind of touching on to like direct consumer health as being part of that kind of concept as well, which is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I think there's health is a really difficult space. I think people under, underestimate how difficult it is to find the right audience for that. Because you know, if you're looking at a product for diabetes, you're not necessarily you're not looking for all people with diabetes. You're looking for a certain group who are you know wealthy enough and in the right moment of time to do it. But I think they can be very powerful because you've got health, you know, physical products plus services plus devices sometimes. I think that's a really powerful state. But selling stuff that is not a million miles different to what you get on Amazon or or Waitrose with, you know, the the invariable premium that you have to take to pay for shipping and that sort of stuff, it just just doesn't work.
0: Let's switch gears back to the new paradigm of marketing. I'll talk about media amplification, especially out-of-home advertising. Uh, Do you think it's worth it? How should brands make decisions when it comes to, you know, those big budgetary decisions?
1: I'm trying to avoid an it depends answer, right? Um, I've done a fair amount of of out-of-home with Graze. I think it can be very effective, I think, with, you know, a lot of people are fairly armoured against advertising and therefore finding a new way to reach them is powerful. And we do think of, like, you know, bottom of the funnel activity and you end up just getting into into a niche and staying in that niche so i think you do need things like that to break out it is a lot more trackable than people think it is you can do a lot of like regional testing so you can test london versus other cities you can do surveys around why people did it you can do promo codes all sorts of stuff so it is a lot more trackable than people give it credit for like we used to do it at Gray's and we'd have all of the store data and we'd look at individual stores in our target area versus not retract it. like There's a bit of art and science. There's always art and science, but like, you can track it. There's a lot more science in it than people think. So I think these sorts of things are very powerful. It's difficult to get to work. It's certainly not. It shouldn't be your first point of call. You've got to get your product in a good place, your conversion higher. But I think for some brands, it's a good way of like breaking out of that sort of PPC meta trap. <laughs>
0: PPC meta trap, I like it. <laughs> um, l- let's bring it to your current world and try and marry that with the new shift in marketing, right? And you're bullish on fractional resources. How does this play into the new paradigm of marketing? Like, are high grade fractional people part of kind of the shift?
1: Yes, they can be. I think uh, fractional can work very well. I think generally people have, if you look at sort of what you know, what, what do people really want? People really want a portfolio career. Like that's mm. that's people really want. They want invest a bit, advise a bit, you know, have some passive income, you know, that's what they want, that's their dream. You know, if you talk to startup people, that's where they all want to head. Um, And then on the other side, you've got early stage startups, which need masses of expertise. So they're very, very risky, and they're risky for lots of reasons. But one is that they, the time from like, okay, this idea makes sense, here's some money to prove to me the economics, that time is so short. And you just can't spend time going down a a sort of a dead end, right? And if you have, you need people with a lot of experience who are like, yeah, done them before, it doesn't work. This is what good looks like. Because you can always test new things and you have to be crystal clear on what you can test and and, whether it works. So you can run a test, the test fails, then you're like, oh, well, if only we did this and only we did this and only we did this. And all of a sudden you've wasted six months making incremental gains where you should have made a massive gain. So I think the early stage startups, their proposition—they need very experienced people. Their proposition to those experienced people is not great mm. because of salary and, and volatility. But fractional can be a great combination to so be like, look, you know, let's get someone in who's got massive experience. They'll be out of the weeds a little bit. They would only put into right copy, and I think that can be really powerful. So I think fractional is definitely interesting. because i been moving forwards. Um, you know, we don't get founders knocking on the door saying, "Get me a fractional person." But when you talk to them and say, well, what you want is difficult, you know, maybe you want an advisor, they say, oh yeah, cool. So it's still an early stage, but I think it's a powerful model. And I think ultimately it's more supply led than demand led. It's more kind of people saying, you know, I want a a sort of more balanced lifestyle, Mm -hmm. but also people who are like unemployed and they can't, they don't have the right role for them in that moment in time.
0: Yeah. Interesting. I want to start to round out the conversation and I want to touch on briefly uh, the LinkedIn grenade that you threw the other day <laughs> that opened up a debate about whether one should use a performance marketing agency versus hire internally. What, what's your take? And was that your most successful LinkedIn post?
1: It depends what you mean by most successful, certainly uh, m- most debate. I would say. Um, most debate, yeah. I mean, I think as, as a quick recap, basically my view was because performance marketing is automated, the value out of an agency is changing. And previously it was about, you know, the sort of secret source of an agency, right? And you would move from one agency to another agency, and you could expect your performance to double. Um, whereas nowadays, those gains are much smaller. And it's more around coordination and kind of having multiple channels and doing things together. And if you're not quite big enough to have a PPC guy and a meta person and a and a designer, then an agency can be a good way of basically being fractional, right? You're not owning them fully; you're owning them fractionally. And I think that's changed. Whereas if you're at scale enough to have those people, I think the benefits have reduced significantly. So yes, I got some, a lot of hate, um, <laughs> which is fair enough. But I also got, for every person who disliked it, I probably got a DM from two people saying "bang on." Um, and I think you know, agencies, agencies, the general quality of agencies has improved a lot. And I think agencies who are sort of more, you know, they're doing more creative, they're doing more data, they're doing a lot more stuff but a traditional agency to buy media the world has moved on i think
0: totally yeah yeah totally i don't know did you get loads of comments that's usually the that's a that's a good litmus test as to whether it was a successful linkedin post
1: got absolutely loads absolutely loads and they were pretty visceral as well um (laughs) but it's good to it's good to have a debate
0: what I was most impressed with is you didn't start with the usual LinkedIn guru bullshit, unpopular opinion, dot, dot, dot. You you came out and you said, this is going to piss some people off. And then here's my opinion, which I very much enjoyed. Um, yeah, it was good fun. Final question. Where is Joe in three years?
1: I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's the honest answer. I mean, if you asked me three years ago, would I be doing this? I'd be like, no. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think there's, you know, I think we found something quite big like hiring is critically important and you know companies are making mistakes all the time and you know companies are having their valuations dropped rapidly because they've mishired and individuals who are being mishired into roles either through their diligence or lack of diligence or through the company it's pretty shit right like it's pretty challenging in terms of like your mental health and situation i think the market just doesn't work in that respect so I think having people who have done it before is a really strong model. Um, you know, what does that mean for the next three years? Honestly, I don't know. Um, you know, tend to just say more of the same.
0: <laughs> well, uh, as with most people when I ask this question, I do guarantee a slot in three years' time to come back because so you nice. that will still be going. That is my strategy to make this a success is that I feel that I will just outrun everyone else and just keep going. I'm here for the long run, so yeah. In three years' time, I'll have you back on the show. How about that? Yeah, that'd be great.
1: It's it's a weird situation because yeah. this is my longest my longest job is having no job, right? <laughs> um, but it's exciting to work in the space, and like it's really nice to work with founders and help their dreams come true. And it's like to work with candidates and like get them a better job. And then you know, you know, I've had a I sort of you know, joked with a guy last week. I was like, you know, if you get this role, then you can send me a bottle of whiskey. And like, you know, one came on like yeah that's that's nice this feels good and it feels like a a useful thing
0: that's really cool all right this is a great way to end the podcast joe thank you so much for joining me
1: thank you for having me much appreciate
0: there you go folks thanks for joining us if you like what you've heard please like download subscribe and tell all your mates to do the same Before we go, a quick word from our friends at OmniSend, the ROI-focused email and SMS marketing platform for online merchants. Go check them out at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty. We'll see you next time.